Well, welcome to episode 131 of The Professor and the Hack. Hope you're going well. I'm the Hack, Hugh Rimmington. With me, The Professor, Peter Van Onselen. You're not an Optus subscriber, are you, Peter? No, I'm not. And I, I was a customer once, but I think long enough ago that I'm okay. I haven't had any text message from them suggesting otherwise. I can't remember the last time I was an Optus customer, but it was in my youth. So that feels like a long time ago. Long enough ago, you reckon? <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. I hope so. Well, you know, there are people, colleagues and so on, people I was spe speaking to yesterday outside the Optus sort of main retail in the center of Sydney who had had no dealings with Optus for a number of years who had nevertheless received text messages. So this is a hell of a mess. Mm. We might touch a little bit on what it means for Optus users and the difficulties, but I think one of the things which struck me is that this is one of those cases where there is a complete gift to a sitting government. Because here is a big event that affects a lot of Australians, that has a lot of Australians talking, that in a sense makes them anxious, never necessarily a good thing, but which isn't their fault that they've got a villain that the opposition agrees is the villain. So it's almost bipartisan dump on Optus. And it enables them to bring in legislative changes, which have already been foreshadowed by the Attorney General Mark Dreyfus, that I think, broadly speaking, are going to have support, particularly in the context of Optus, with regard to changes to the Privacy Act and, and higher penalties that are being promised. How do you read the dynamic? Oh, I think you're absolutely right. You know, It's one of those ones where it's a bipartisan attack on a corporate and an attack on a corporate that is entirely on face value justified because it looks like you know, whatever's happened here, there has been some contributory negligence, it would appear, to them not having their systems appropriately in order to safeguard data. And also there are question marks about just how much data's been held, and including historical and, and why so much details and so forth. What I find interesting, though, like I'm, and I've, I've done my weekend column in the Oz on this, I hope that this debate backfires on the political parties, both major political parties, because, you know, they're banging on about their concerns about people's privacy and the, the way that these corporates are taking advantage of that, et cetera, et cetera. So we need to change the Privacy Act. Well, I'm interested in party databases, which are exempt from the Privacy Act, Hugh. That is to say, the major parties get full electronic access to the electoral roll, including the monthly updates provided by the Australian Electoral Commission. They start out with basic information like your date of birth, your full name, your telephone number, these sorts of things. And then they build on it. You know, if you contact an electorate office about a matter or go through your local MP to a department about something that could be quite personal or quite fundamental, they upload that information into the database. They try to get a sense of what issues matter to you, and they try to get a sense of what your voting preference is. And they want to use this material to then pepper you with campaign material to try to win you over to try to limit their campaign costs so they only focus on swinging voters, for example. They can also use this database to vet potential people who they appoint to various government boards if you've got a predilection that they've been able to discover to support the other side of politics in some of your dealings. It's incredibly invasive. It is incredibly you know, invasive about your privacy. You have no rights to access the information to even know if it's accurate. And they've exempted themselves, the legislators have exempted themselves from the Privacy Act. And because political parties are private organisations, you can't even FOI this stuff because that's for the public sphere and they are private organisations. Now, what's my point about this? Well, firstly, this is a serious breach of privacy and long has been and it's becoming worse because of technological advancement in these databases. So that's the first point. If they're serious about people's privacy, reform your own databases. Stop them being exempt from the Privacy Act. But my next question, Hugh, is, 
how safe are they? How open are they to being hacked? And even if they're not open to being hacked, hundreds and hundreds of staffers and politicians have roaming access to this database that, by the way, follows you year on year on year, decade on decade. Things you might have said 20 years ago when these databases started out as a firebrand at university, for example, you could then be a a sort of a middle-aged man or woman in business who's been considered for an appointment by one of these parties, yet they've got information there from when they went door knocking you know, in your inner city suburb when you were studying at Sydney University and, you know, you had some peroxide in your hair at the time and you explained why you think that we need to overthrow the government and what they're doing in parts of communist China makes sense. Whammo, that's it. You're done. You're cooked. And you've got no right to even see if that's accurate. Now, my point about this is if they're serious on Optus, as opposed to just scoring political points, then they should also take a damn good look at themselves because otherwise they're utter hypocrites. You make an excellent point. And uh, as you also, you know, by implication, say that the politicians are very clever. The one area where they'll have bipartisanship is when they have self-interest. And uh, so you wonder, as they change, it's already been well prefigured by Mark Dreyfus that he hopes to get a legislation to amend the Privacy Act in this year. Now, there are not that many parliamentary sessions left this year. So he's looking at going lickety-split to put new laws around privacy. And I guess on what you're saying, they will once again shepherd out all the things that deal with the political party. So what is the role then? This could be a test for the Teals and for the Greens to raise such a bloody ruckus on this very point that the Privacy Act has to at least to some degree stretch into the political parties. Well, well, they, they, they just have to remove their own exemption. I mean, they argue that they need the exemption because they need to be able to campaign. But All the exemption does is allow them to compile information about people without their consent or without their capacity to access it. They campaign before computers. Just a note for those who just woke up yesterday. Exactly. Well said. And and let's call them out. The Liberal Party's database is called Feedback. The Labor Party's database is called Campaign Central. It used to be called Electrack, but that sounded far too nefarious. So they changed its name a few years back to Campaign Central. Uh, my understanding is back when I did a fair bit of academic research on this, you know, we're talking the turn of the century, by the way, the feedback database of the Liberals was the far superior of the two. Now I'm led to believe that Labor have pushed forward in leaps and bounds and their database is the more superior. Now, the definition of more superior means that it's more invasive. And because they are exempt from the Privacy Act, they can compile anything. When, when I've done research on this in the past... I've got I've you know got access to these databases because every MP has access to it. And you look people up and there are limited login functionalities that allow the database to even trace which staffer or which office have logged in because they've they've kept that information to a minimum. That may have changed in recent years. But you you can look you, you can look people up, which straight away is its own breach of privacy, but you can then amend things. Like in theory. An electorate officer in some in some you know marginal seat can go into this database, look up someone you know who they went to school with or whatever who lives in the electorate, and then they can just tag them as a strong liberal voter, just to mess with them. Or they can write in there that they're disruptive when they ring the electorate office in the notes section, and that just sits there. It's unbelievable. So here's a, here's the thing. So maybe there's a position going sometime in the uh, in the administrative appeals tribunal, which has become a notorious retirement home for former political party hacks. So say you are a political party hack, you're going for the gig. You know that someone else is going for the same gig. You know they're going to get vetted. You think, here's a little thought. 
I'll just get back into that database and rewrite it so that that other person is essentially ruled out by some non-existent act of you know, subversion that they tried on as a student. And one of the problems with this is that it's because it's completely unregulated and has no oversight and has all these exemptions from the Privacy Act, which means that people can't even fact check what information is held against them. There's no independent body, for example, that can have oversight either. They fall between the legal cracks. And who knows? The point is, we just don't know what's in there, how nefarious or otherwise it is. And were it to be hacked, well, we don't even know what their firewalls are like to know whether it's, it's, it's sort of hack proof. And he's just as concerning a part of this. A lot of people go through their local MP when they're trying to deal with government departments. And it can be some very personal things around issues of domestic violence, around health issues. And you provide all sorts of details when going back and forth with the department, Medicare numbers, you know, private information. And that's all part of the correspondence that often runs through the local MP because people use their local MP to get to the various parts of, of government where they need assistance if they've had barriers in the past. Those documents, Hugh, often get uploaded into the party database. And so were it to be hacked... It's a bloody outrage, mate. Oh, it, it, is it actually is outrageous. And I remember, you know, the problem is that the dogs bark, but the caravan always moves on. And I, I got a fair bit of media out of this as a, as a, as a callow new academic when I started writing about it, as, as a copy of Feedback's manual fell off the back of a truck and I, I was able to detail it. But it got, it got attention. It occasionally comes back. But what it really needs, and, you know, I mean, here I am suggesting others do this, it really needs a deep, deep dive investigation. You know, I mean, dare I say it, the kind of program like a Four Corners that can really burrow in, you know, where you can put the kind of effort into it that, Unfortunately, in the media age we, we live in, there isn't as much as there used to be in terms of resource allocation for that. And what it needs, and this is the biggest problem, Hugh, it needs a powerful voice in Parliament. Maybe the Teals are the, the source for this. We've never had that for the exact reason that you identified earlier. There is a bipartisan consensus to quash this as an issue because both major parties enjoy the benefits of it. And even the minor parties and independents, because they're members of Parliament, they get full access to the electronic electoral roll. They wouldn't like the advantage that the majors have over them technologically with these databases and with the historical data in it. But nonetheless, Hugh, they are still, if you like, benefits of this cartel that exists. So if the media and if the public don't maintain the rage, there isn't an opposition really in parliament prepared to make the hard running on this. And so the issue tends to come and go. As I say, the dogs bark, but the caravan ends up moving on. Yeah, and the argument often made is, oh, well, you give all this information for free to Facebook, but it's not the same thing. Not at all. And just one other point, we've got lots to talk about today, but one other point is that we know that all kinds of databases in Australia are constantly under attack by not just criminal gangs, but also by state actors. We have seen with Optus how when there is a mass data breach, the brand damage is profound. The brand damage to Optus is profound. To such a degree that yesterday, when I was talking to Stephen Jones, the financial services minister, there was a slight rowing back of the language about saying, this is Optus's fault, this is, this is Optus's stuff up, when it was put to him that what happens if they are so badly damaged as a brand that they have to exit the market? Oh, well, all of a sudden, the price point goes up, doesn't it? Suddenly, they realize that you've got then a kind of a Telstra monopoly effectively across the place. And so they start, oh, we're not, this isn't a gang up on Optus, you know, we need to have a competitive 
So, but they recognize the vulnerability according to that. Okay, so now let's let's apply that to a political brand. Mm. So if party, whether it's the coalition or the Labour Party, was to have its database hacked and then spread out the anger against that political party, particularly as people realize how much they hold, would be profound. It could turn an election. Mm. Now, you look at that in terms of an overseas state actor with an interest in interfering with political outcomes. Great point. In this country, they might say, well, I don't want that lot getting in. I want that lot getting in because they're going to be more amenable. If we can hack in, spread that, the public noise will be so bad that will destroy the brand of that political party. We might be giving them ideas, Hugh. I think they've thought of them all. Well, the, 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 other, the other point, which I've talked a little bit about here, it's all good and well for the government to attack Optus, fair enough, but how do you fix this? One of the ways to fix it is to actually make paying ransoms illegal. People are shocked, would be shocked to know how many corporates pay ransoms. It's not illegal. You have to report that you were hacked to the government but it is not illegal just to pay these criminal syndicates. I've had people say, oh, but that's not going to deter the criminal syndicates. Actually, it does, because their whole business model is that they can hack corporates and corporates will pay a million dollars, half a million dollars, whatever, because it's, it's just a straight up business decision. We don't want this information to go out there. And if you can believe this, I know it sounds fanciful, but these, these criminal syndicates are so businesslike that corporates can get on Zoom calls with them and negotiate the price and be certain that they have a quote-unquote good reputation in the market that if you pay the ransom, they don't spread it on the dark web. It's actually a business model that comes from overseas. But if you pay the ransom, the business model goes to some extent because that, you know, they, they only want to hack to get the ransom. Well, this is the problem from what my, my studies is that they've got the criminal business model has two elements. One is the simple... I've got your data, pay me X million and you can have it back and I'll destroy it. That's fine. Or I sell it off. Or I sell it off. So if, if, you, if you kidnap a human being and say, right, give me a million bucks or I kill him, you know, it's a, if they don't pay the money, what are you going to do? You kill him or you let him go. But with this one, you can take that human being and sell him, for, sell him on for, for millions of dollars. Then it doesn't matter whether you pay the ransom or not. Yeah. It's not the only solution, but it is part of the solution is my understanding. Because from my research on this, what I've been led to believe is that their preference is that you pay. Yes, it's, it's quick money. Exactly. So if you take that off the table and don't allow corporates to pay ransoms, and, unless it's extreme circumstances where there can be sort of negotiation with government, if you take that off the table, I'm led to believe that it massively reduces attempts to hack. Some still will for the exact reason you point out, of course, because they can just simply try to sell the data. But it, I'm led to believe it does have a profound sort of, if you like, quashing effect on the amount of it which will happen. But, but absolutely, it has to be a multi-pronged attack. It can't just be a case of saying the whole thing's solved if you, just pay, if you just make it illegal to pay ransoms. How odd that it's not illegal, by the way. Like, whether you think that's a good idea or not, whether it works or not, how odd that it's completely legal for a corporate to just say to the government, by the way, we've been hacked, just letting you know, because that's our you know, sort of obligation under, under the rules. And then they just get into these business-like negotiations yeah. to pay off hundreds of thousands of dollars to a, a criminal who then you can apparently trust, who says, okay, that was worth it. Yeah, I don't think it's illegal to, uh, to pay ransoms with kidnappings. And, uh... No, no. But, but there, there's lives on the line there. So I can sort of see that because that's sort of, you know, it, it's a family situation. A wealthy individual has somebody kidnapped. I can see why that happens, even though often they don't negotiate with terrorists, so to speak. But, uh, but where it's not lives on the line, the idea that it can just become part of doing business, it's almost like it allows the government off the hook, doesn't it? 
because it allows the government... Like, we wouldn't accept the government not policing our streets and it was just left to your own devices to deal with people walking around in hoods who may or may not break into your house. Why do we allow them to largely not police the cyberspace to the national interest? I don't know. It's, it's a difficult area. Lots to talk about. Let's take a quick break. Back with more in just a moment. Welcome back. This is episode 131 of The Professor and the Hack. I'm hacking. Hugh Rimmington, PVO is professorizing. Let's talk about one of the enormous promises. And we remember the small or smart target approach of Labour going into the last election where they didn't make an enormous number of promises, but one was a National Integrity Commission with teeth. They've delivered the legislation. Have they got it right? I, th I think it's got teeth. I mean, I think there's a debate to be had now, and it's largely around whether or not it's okay to have hearings that aren't in public if the commissioner deems them exceptional or it's not in the public interest to have them in public. That's a live debate. And I can understand that, you know, the opposition are likely to support it as long as there is the capacity to have private hearings. Uh, that seems to be Peter Dutton's position. I can also understand that the Greens in particular, but also sections of the crossbench want to see more transparency on that space. Labor's trying to sit in the middle of that to some extent with the way that they've worded it in the legislation. I actually have concerns if there's not a capacity to keep them in private, but I also have concerns, obviously, if they're always kept in private and that you, know, you lose that public gaze, because quite often the public gaze of itself leads to more capacity for, for the organisation to uncover wrongdoing. But you've got to get the balance right because you don't want to tar and feather people who are just accused before they uh, have a chance to potentially be cleared. And in politics, whether we like it or not, and in media, that, that is what tends to happen. So on balance, I think they've sort of got it roughly right. There'll be a bit of a debate. Well done to the government. You know, I mean, Scott Morrison went to the 2019 election promising to have an independent commission against corruption of some form at the federal level, never delivered it, never even put legislation to the parliament during three years. Labor said in the election campaign, we're going to get it done by the end of the year of the election. It remains to be seen if it'll get passed into law by the end of the year, but they're giving it every chance, aren't they? Because they've now tabled the actual legislation and there's enough time left this year potentially for it to be in place in law by the end of the year. Good on them. It was an election pledge that they're keeping. And the coalition is sort of arguing that they want to have private sessions because otherwise reputations get trashed. And uh, some people have pointed out, well, it didn't actually stop them holding royal commissions into Julia Gillard's relationship years before she ever entered parliament which had found nothing, or Bill Shorten, they were quite happy to go out and trash reputations if they could possibly see a benefit out of it. So hopefully those days are behind us. Stage three tax cuts. We're coming up to this budget in, uh, it's really just a couple of weeks away now, but... Can, can I just ask you a question before? Sorry, I know you are moving on to that. I, I want to get your view. Do you think Anthony Albanese wants the commission, the, the, the new integrity commission, to pass with bipartisan major party support? Or would he rather... Peter Dutton threw the toys out of the pram because he felt that there wasn't enough, you know, if you like, protections for people in the way that the hearings occur. And Labor, you know, if you like, get in and snuggle up to the crossbench, forcing Peter Dutton to have voted with his party and the opposition on the floor of the parliament against an integrity commission. Like, I mean, the politics of that I find interesting. What, what's your view on that? Well, I think that there's two things. There's politics around the vote and who you can nail, and there is the fundamental substantive question of this really important piece of legislation, bringing 
the Commonwealth into line with the states, and that is to have what's long been not available to the public, to the community at large, and where the public have made a very clear statement that they want to see one, and that is a genuine, legitimate national integrity process. And so I think looking at uh, the things that have been said by Dreyfus in recent weeks, particularly in recent days, I think they've worked really, really hard to get a model that they think will both work and which also will become sort of a permanent part of the landscape. So take the politics out of it in a way? Well, so that it's not the kind of thing that gets bashed down at the next election, that gets knocked around for years and years, Mm. because then it becomes a partisan fight over what form the damn thing takes. Mm. And I think it's to everyone's benefit if there's a model there which is sound and thinking. You know, and everyone kind of goes, well, it's not the ideal for me, or it has this I don't like, but it's a good model. So if that is what's motivating them, I think all power to them. Well, I hope you're. I, I hope that is what's motivating them because you're right. I think it does need that. But boy, the politics must be tempting. You know, it must be very tempting for the political strategists in the Labor government to think, you know, just a little tweak here or there. If that means that Peter Dutton votes against it, wow, you know, how good's that? But, but look at it. But Dutton doesn't. You know, one of the things which was a total flaw in the Morrison government model, such as it was, was that it couldn't be retrospective. Mm. You know, it's all, if they wanted one, they wanted one that was going to damage the Labour Party governments in future and they could use and weaponise without any backward look. But this one has retrospectivity built into it. And it would be quite easy for Dutton to campaign on this as being a partisan witch hunt to try to, you know, unearth things, which, et cetera. He doesn't want to look like he's covering up wrongdoing in the past government, does he? Yeah, he? Exactly. So he hasn't done it. He hasn't done that. And I think that's quite significant. I don't think it's an accident. And I think what Dutton wants to do is actually not do, as you suggest, be seen as a guy you know, covering up, but also hostile to the notion of greater accountability on integrity in public. Oh, yeah. He doesn't, he doesn't want to be that guy. I agree. But I, I wonder whether Labor wants to see if they can tweak it in such a way that they turn him into that guy. And he sort of feels compelled, perhaps, because of pressure amongst colleagues to vote against it. But, I, but I, look, I, I tend to agree with you, though. I, I, I get the impression that all sides are trying to avoid that genuinely for the national good, to have one that has enough bipartisan support so that once it starts laying into pollies, it doesn't become a partisan fight because of that, because of the way that it came into being. But we'll see. Yeah, I hope so. hope so. Sorry, I cut you off before. No, no, we're talking about, uh, I was just going to get started on tax cuts because Chalmers has, Jim Chalmers, the treasurer, has made it plain that the stage three tax cuts will go ahead. He's been given ample opportunities to say that they might be due for a tweak or that the time might not be now, but nevertheless, he's going ahead with the stage three tax cuts. And I wonder about this because there's a whole bunch of reasons, whether it's good policy or not, you know, I'm not going to get down that argument, but look at what's happened in Britain. Liz Truss, the new prime minister, has come in and pressed ahead with debt-funded tax cuts, which is what these stage three tax cuts would be in Australia. So debt-funded tax cuts to the wealthier cohorts of our society, which puts money in the pockets of the rich, essentially, to simplify it, at a time when still interest rates are rising, another rise is expected in the coming days, and you get what's happening in Britain, where the... Bank of England is trying to put its foot on the brake. The government is trying to heave money into the furnace to put the foot on the accelerator. And the result is a total loss of confidence in the British currency 
and now a total lot of confidence in the Truss government. It is being murdered in the polls. Its standing as an economic manager is worth worthless, effectively. And in the space of a few weeks, Truss has trashed any suggestion that she's any kind of an economic manager. And I just wonder, is anyone in Chalmers' office looking across towards England and having a second thought? Look, it's interesting. I mean, there's there's the economics and the politics of this. At the political level, I suspect that Team Chalmers, Team Labor will be hoping that any political blowback goes in both directions because these tax cuts were bipartisan, I guess. And if anything, they were driven, obviously, by the, the Morrison government when legislated. And it's just that Labor's sticking by it. Well, Chalmers is the government. They, the blame will fall on the government. I agree. I I agree. I just... I think that's what they will be hoping if there's a political blowback about them, that it's, it, you know, it's sort of, it, it immerses both sides in the mud and possibly even Morrison even more so, or the, the, the former Morrison government and therefore the now liberal opposition. But then there's the economics of it. And I mean, there's also the politics of breaking election promises, but we'll put that to one side. There's the economics of it, which you're right. It's, it's the equivalent of somebody pressing the brake and the accelerator on a car at the same time with the fiscal policy that, that can be controlled by the government and the monetary policy being controlled by the Reserve Bank, you're creating an inflationary environment with these tax cuts amongst wealthier people, which brings about inflation, which affects poorer people who don't have the wage benefits or the tax cut benefit that comes from stage three to handle the inflationary effect you're having. Uh, And then they are doubly hit, obviously, if they've bought into the property market, because then the Reserve Bank puts up interest rates to combat that inflation even more than they otherwise might have which then impacts them with their home loan repayments if they've gotten into the market, which they, by the way, Hugh, might have been encouraged into by government policies. It's hugely regressive, isn't it? Oh, it is. Look, I actually have no problem conceptually with a version of the stage three tax cuts if you then put in place some wealth taxes and consumption taxes and some relief for lower income earners to go with that. I mean, look, we don't have time for this now, but I would completely restructure the tax system the biggest problem in the tax system, Hugh, is that you have a tax-free threshold of $20,000, which doesn't just go to people who earn thirty dollars or $40,000 or $50,000, but you can earn a million dollars and you get the tax-free threshold of 20000 And that's why it's so costly to the budget. Overseas, people are trialing credit-back structures, uh, which, which are based on your income. So you can start paying tax immediately rather than have a tax-free threshold, but you get a credit back if your overall tax rate based on previous years or whatever it might be uh, is such that you're a low income earner. Uh, The problem is every time the government tries to help people on low incomes by slightly pushing up the tax-free threshold, all those people earning grander sums also get the benefit of that and it undercuts the budget. And and, and that's where I think this debate will end up as well, by the way, when it comes to stage three tax cuts. We now know because of the update to the budget, you know, combination of commodity prices and full employment, an originally projected budget deficit for the financial year just passed of $100 billion has actually ended up only being $30 billion. I can't believe I'm saying only $30 billion, but that's where it's landed. Now, this is interesting politically to me because it means that in the next couple of years, Labor might well be delivering larger budget deficits than the final budget outcome of the full financial year of the Morrison government at $30 billion. That'll be a political problem for them. It's not their fault necessarily because there's all sorts of other moving parts to this. But if the stage three tax cuts gut the budget of tax revenue, that will put massive upward pressure on what the size of the budget deficit looks like. And you can see Labor struggling in a lot of different directions, Hugh, don't you think? 
one of them gets added to the mix, which is that it's hard to get anywhere near paying down debt or at least getting to a surplus or a balanced budget if you're gutting the tax system of what will, I think, what did they say? Around $120 billion worth of additional tax over, you know, sort of the forward estimates and slightly beyond that. That's what the stage three tax cut impact is before we even talk about it being regressive or the impact it has on inflation. The other thing which is interesting is that if they were to get rid of what are already legislated tax cuts, and that's the thing, they're already in the pipeline, you have to legislate to get rid of them or have to go to parliament and get the votes to get rid of them. And that puts an interesting situation for the Teals because Wentworth and Warringah and McKellar and Kuyong and Menzies and Goldstein, the richest postcodes collectively in the country and in WA Curtin as well. So if the Teals vote for the top end stage three tax cuts or for them to be continued, then they, their progressive credentials go down by a few degrees. But if they vote against the tax cuts, they stand vulnerable to being attacked in those seats by liberals, giving that that door opening a little bit for the Liberals to come back and get some of those seats. Yeah, and, 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 and feed into the self-interest of a lot of wealthier voters in those largely wealthy electorates. It, it's, it's, a, it's a catch-22 for them. I think it's, it's also a problem for the Labor Party because even though their base, I think, would like them to walk away from the stage three tax cuts for all the obvious economic reasons, it still becomes a broken promise and it can still be misrepresented as to who's missing out on those tax cuts by the opposition at an election campaign. Both sides of politics are happy to misrepresent, you know, death duties, uh, killing off Medicare, franking credits that are going to affect everyone, even though they affected few had they been legislated by Short and had he won the 2019 election. So, you know, that, that misrepresentation can become a real problem, I think, for Labor were they to break an election promise as well. I think what Anthony Albanese wants to do is one of two things. I think he either wants to have an excuse for an early election shortly before these tax cuts get legislated where he can say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to repeal, repeal them at, after the election if I get elected, so I haven't broken a promise. Or he could delay them by 12 months and so that he can say, we're going to make the next election a referendum on whether we should have these higher income tax cuts. I still haven't broken an election promise. Or I guess there's a third option, which is that he restructures them, where he gives most of the cut to people who were earning yeah, well, maybe up to 100000 or up to 150000 a large amount of what they would have got under stage three, but he recants it for all those much higher income earners who he doesn't care so much about potentially. But anything that he does to fiddle it will be a broken promise. True. And and then allows them, exposes them, as you say, to the campaign, oh, Labor put up your taxes, mm. even though it's it's only not taking away a tax cut that's chiefly available to those who are on, on good incomes. That becomes part of the campaign. It's difficult. It's a mess for them. But... Uh, I can't help feeling that it's uh, it's not the time. Timing is everything. Yeah, but it's funny, isn't it? Labor hardheads tell me, because I've asked them about this, they just think he's going to stick to it. Yeah, well, that's what Chalmers has made it as clear as he can make it. They're going to stick to it. They're not looking at it, changing yeah, anything. Yeah, but, but you look at it and you, what, you just think, can they? <laughs> it's sort of, they, they, they want to because they don't want to break an election promise, but sticking to it is, I mean, we're literally talking about $9,000 a year tax cuts for people who earn $200,000 or more. And if you earn $100,000, it's a $1,300 tax cut. Now, I know the reason for that is because people who earn over $100,000 are paying a lot of tax, but they're flattening the rate to the same 30 cents in the dollar for anyone who earns, for the amount of your income, between $45,000 and $200,000. 
And at the moment, there are multiple levels there, which is why if you earn 200000 you get $9,000 more in your pay packet every year. If you're a, a dual income, high earning family who both earn $200,000, $18,000 a year more money in your pay packet. That, I mean, that's extraordinary. That almost pays a term at one of these schools. It's, it is extraordinary, isn't it? So, so two people who earn 100 grand, fairly well-paid teachers in the context of teachers' salaries, get a combined tax cut, a, a, a double working teacher family, well, you know, as I say, senior teachers on 100 grand. They, very senior teachers, frankly, they would get 2,600 or 2,800 thereabouts all up. The double family on 200,000, pair of lawyers, let's say, you know, mid-ranking lawyers on 200,000 each, they are getting $18,000 more every year. That's after tax. That's unbelievable. You say you absolutely make the case as to why it seems it seems poor policy, I've got to say. It, it doesn't seem particularly much Labor Party policy, and the timing doesn't seem right. I remember coming home after the 2019 election, the, the wee hours of the morning by the time it was over, having spent, as you well know from this podcast, you having spent a while declaring that Bill Shorten couldn't lose the election. And I, I thought that his policies that removed the regressive elements in our society and had some wealth taxes, I thought the egalitarian fairness principles that they were going to be a good thing for this country. You know, all those tax breaks around negative gear and all the rest of it. And I remember walking home because, you know, my wife and I, we are an affluent family. And I walked in, sat outside, poured myself a drink and, and her one. And she just looked at me and she just said, what happened? And I said, well, I obviously didn't pick it. And I said to her, look, all you can do is drink up and think, well, this victory is good for us. Pure self-interest. I actually thought Bill Shorten winning would have been a good thing for the restructure for what makes Australia a good country. But I just said to her, chink your glass, we're now going to get an 18 grand tax cut between the two of us. How ridiculous is that? And it turns out that a Labor government is going to be presiding more than three years later when that stage three comes in, if they stick to it, giving a wealthy dual income family that amount of money. It's, it's, it's insane, but self-interest means that a lot of you know, wealthy people probably want it. Well, you know, it is a Labour government. You've studied the Labour victory. You have a new book out ah. called... <laughs> victory. Well, literally just called Victory. Pamela Williams called her 96 book about Howard's win, The Victory. We figured, you know, a quarter of a century is long enough for us to steal most of the title. We call it Victory. The subheading is The Inside Story of Labour's Return to Power. Uh, it comes out uh, on the 5th of October in bookstores, but about the time that people that interest rates go up again, I think that's, <laughs> that's a... right. I mean, they may not. Hopefully, they're still prepared to spend their money buying the book. Look, what, look very quickly. What I loved genuinely about this book, and why I hope people enjoy reading it, is we had great inside access. So yes, there's part one is pre the campaign. Part two, which is the chunky part of the book, is a chapter a week for the election campaign, and then the last section is the aftermath and where to from here. But you know, Anthony Albanese gave us hours and hours of interviews. Paul Erickson, the Labor Secretary who ran the campaign, spoke to me ad nauseum. Uh, so did all the other senior operatives. I had spoke to senior operatives on the Liberal side as well, but it's focused on Labor. It was fun writing it because it felt like you got inside the campaign, particularly the Labor campaign, to ride the roller coaster of the good and the bad before they eventually won. And I've got lots of fun anecdotes as a result. And I genuinely hope that readers enjoy it because it does feel like you sort of get inside the camp. And, you know, big thanks to Anthony Albanese and Paul Erickson in particular for being so open without any form of rights over what was actually published in the end. 
their openness, you know, is what makes you feel like you're sitting next to them when they have their daily or weekly tactical or strategic meetings trying to decide how they deal with particular things. Like that's the flavor we were going for. And I, I should mention my co-author, Wayne Errington, you know, we write together all the time. You know, he was obviously instrumental as co-author in, in getting the book done. Absolutely. And just quickly on this, the uh, Financial Review Boss magazine has come out, the Power Index, and uh, they picked through the election result, not in the detail that you do, but there's a ref, you know, they do an extended article there on Scott Morrison and the election campaign, the moment when uh, he described himself as a bulldozer was the moment, to the total surprise of the people around Morrison who had no idea this was, had never been workshopped, there was never an idea that this might come up. <laughs> but what was really interesting was that at the, immediately afterwards, with the new parliament as a surviving and the new Liberal Party MPs arrived in parliament, they were briefed by Andrew Hurst, the campaign director for the Liberal Party, on why they'd lost. And uh, this article says the standout thing which stuck in everyone's mind was that 67%, 67% of the Australian people had judged that the Liberal Party, quote, had fallen behind the views of modern Australia, the conservative, backward-looking, you know, all those little coded aspects of it, the religiosity. Well, the environment, everything, right? Like it's it's an issue. Part of the tint of homophobia, mm. the whole damn thing, meant that people looked at the Liberal Party and didn't see it representing their broad views about Australia. And it falls now to Peter Dutton to change their mind. This will be for another podcast. But in two or three words, can he do that? Is he the man equipped to do that? Well, that, and what you just said then, that's the big question, isn't it? Is he really the right person for the job? The problem they've got is there's not really anyone else obvious for it. And that's why it looks like this is just a systemic problem for the Liberal Party. You know, um, older voters tend to vote Liberal, younger voters tend to vote Labor. The younger voters are getting older. And my understanding of the, the data is that the older they're getting, they're not switching the way that they once did in generations gone by across to the conservative side of politics. And younger voters are increasingly going towards the more progressive side of politics for a lot of the reasons you mentioned versus what they've done in decades gone by. Now, this can all flip based on the economy and tough times ahead, but it doesn't change the fact that the Liberal Party just looks like an out-of-touch party that doesn't represent a lot of people. And the more multicultural we get, the stronger uh, you know, the role of women, you know, not just broadly in society, but in the workforce gets, the Liberal Party looks out of touch. It looks dated. And I don't know how they fix that. And the one thing they used to always have that unified them, Hugh, was that they were, in their mind at least, the better economic managers. Well, you know, the, the Morrison government to some extent has trashed that. And I don't know that they can hold on to that fig leaf, because I think it was only a fig leaf personally. What unites them now? You know, it's hard to know what unites them before you even get to the difficult question of how do they convince particularly younger voters that they're not just profoundly out of touch with modern Australia. It's, you know, the death of the Liberal Party has been predicted before unsuccessfully. The death of the two-party system has been predicted before unsuccessfully. But I think it is on life support now in a way that it hasn't been before. Doesn't mean it's going to die, but I tell you what, it's, it's not looking good. Fascinating. Look forward to seeing your book. Peter Van Onselen, great to talk to you as always. Likewise. Cheers, Hugh. Listening to The Professor and the Hack, a Network 10 podcast. To make sure you don't miss any episodes, subscribe in your favourite podcast app. Thanks for listening. <laughs>